Venerable Children is gone, but she'll be back, and then we'll finish Precious Garland. And then we're going to start another book on Thursday night. It's not a, so easy of a topic. If you read the intro to this, it, the people who took his classes in debate, this book written by Dan Perdue, it was a hard college class for most of them. And what they learned in it was incredibly helpful for their lives. I mean, it taught you how to think. And, you know, it was really invaluable. And it's not, although they use Buddhist philosophy, it's like the subtitle here is an Asian approach to analytical thinking drawn from Indian and Tibetan sources. So they use a lot of Buddhist philosophy to present this. But his hope in this is that you're actually learning how to use critical analytical thinking and it can be applied to anything. And so I just want to read, uh, I'll say this first, just so in case you're going to tune out tonight. This book is a little expensive. It is the book we're going to use. And it's written, it's published by Snow Lion, now Shambhala. And they're going to give a one-week discount, 50% off, just once. And if you're going to take this class with us and join us on Thursday nights, you might want to take advantage of this electronic version of the book will be 50% off from Monday, April 10th through Sunday, April 16th from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Apple. And the book is Daniel Perdue's The Course in Buddhist Reasoning and Debate. Make sure you get the right book. He's got a book called Debate, and you don't want that one. You want this one that's called The Course in Buddhist Reasoning and Debate. And I thought I would just read, because we have a couple minutes, the little things that they write on the back, because it's nice. Jeffrey Hopkins write it, writes about this. Lucidly written with a conversational style, this book beckons you into a shining world of rational insight, glistening with light, and reveals how to utilize the gifts of your own mind, magnificent, highly accessible. And then Donald Lopez says, in the monastic universities of Tibet, two modes of learning were central, memorization and debate. Tibetan debate is known in the West more for its color than for its content. Daniel Perdue explains with patient clarity just how Tibetan monastic debate works. And then Tupton Jempa, someone who grew up with this system, says, Daniel Perdue's book presents an elusive and engaging manner in an in a lucid and engaging manner, the methods and practice of the remarkable debate system of Tibetan monastic education. For the first time, the contemporary English reader has the chance to experience the clarity, swiftness, and precision of thinking that the Tibetan bait training is so famous for. So that's like the hang the carrot up. <laughs> Join us. I think it will be challenging in a good way. So tonight we have the opportunity to delve into some questions that Venerable Children left for us regarding Nagarjuna's teaching from the Precious Garland. And this particular next series of questions are quite practice-oriented, I would say. So we can really put ourselves into these in a very immediate way, I find. So having such a master as Nagarjuna, and then the commentary by Geshe Tekchok and then Venerable Children's elucidation of that puts us in a great position to try to put these teachings into practice, to improve and develop our abilities
and to um, rid ourselves of anything that's in the way of being benefit to others. So let's expand our minds for a moment to this motivation of bodhicitta and just think how amazing it would be to have the skills of a Buddha as we face the problems that we see just in our daily lives. And then expanding that out to all, all living beings in all the realms. So let's place what we're going to do tonight in this context and really have a joyful mind about having the opportunity to learn from such a great master. So we haven't done any quizzes for a while, so to catch people up, we're on the first question of quiz number seven. And this first question actually has four questions in it, so this was kind of a long one, and for me, an important one, because I never really knew much about this teaching before, and I had some wrong ideas about just the words, you know, when I heard about gathering disciples and this and that. I had some misunderstandings. Well, actually, not even that just lack of knowledge. So that will be a lot of what a big portion of tonight will be that. I'm hoping to get through the first three and into the fourth, but we'll just see how it goes. These all are questions that have a lot of, you know, they aren't so technical. They're ones that we can really kind of sink into from our own common sense of what we know about our practice in the Dharma. So this first one, what, I'll read the questions first and then we'll kind of take them bit by bit, what are the four means of attracting others in order to guide them in the Dharma? What, are the, what does it mean to guide someone in the Dharma? What is the range of activities you may do? And what are the, what are the internal requirements to engage in each type of activity? So does anyone happen to know what verse this is referring to? Okay, let's have somebody read the verse 133. Be generous, speak gently, be beneficent. Act with the same intention that you wish from others. Through these actions, bring together the world and also sustain the Dharma. Right. So the first two lines there are actually the four means of attracting others. Do you want to repeat those, kind of number them out? The first is the four. First is being generous. Yep. Second is to speak gently. Should I go further or just quote it? Yeah, uh, yeah just quote it. Okay, speak gently. Third is uh, be beneficent. Beneficent, I think it's how you say it. And four, act in a way that accords with what you have instructed them. In other words, practice what you preach. Okay, does anyone want to share about those? One of the things that I continually forget to... Uh, that I that I forget is that when being generous, I automatically go to giving my time, giving my energy, giving things, giving of my knowledge and expertise. But Geshe Zopa 
really says that it is a mostly a training, a mental training. It's not actually the physical act of giving. So I've been thinking about, well, what kind of, it's, so it's a lot about motivation on why we're trying to give and that it's, it's more about one's attitude rather than what we're Actually, giving, actually gift, giving. Right. Yeah, so I continually forget about that. So it was a good reminder to remember that um, gathering disciples is what's the motivation behind giving whatever it is, whether it's material possessions, whether it's love, whether right. it's fearlessness or the Dharma, is what's driving the, what's the attitude driving the activity. Yeah, that's a very good point. I think that for me was the thing that dispelled my lack of knowledge about this whole question of gathering disciples because as I studied these questions I realized this is all about the disciples you're training yourself to be able to serve others essentially I hadn't when I heard the word gathering disciples I kind of had my I don't know western business mind of you know trying to get a flock here so I have something you know it wasn't it wasn't like it was for them and so yeah and so these four things the you know we're going to you know to attract others these are ways to care for them actually and what are we trying to do we're trying to influence them to go in a wholesome direction and how do we do that they use the expression ripen their mind streams basically meaning mature the person in the dharma and so the first one being generous, they usually talk about four, three or four kinds. Does anyone remember those? Material, Material support, right? Love, Love fearlessness, fearlessness, and teaching the Dharma, right? So material support, fearlessness, which means protecting them from danger, teaching the Dharma, and love which in one cont- one means is offering like support and uh, counseling, but also it means the four measurables in some other. So this generosity actually, um, you're making other people happy essentially, and then they'll be friendly and attracted to you. And that's actually, you know, as we go through this tonight, it, it's kind of a no-brainer. But as they point out some of the things that we do wrong, <laughs> we'll see how it's kind of a common sense thing, but we don't always think that way. So anyway, by people being attracted to you and feeling friendly towards you, that gives you an opportunity. And then what can you do with that opportunity? The next three things. You speak in a pleasant way to them about the Dharma. You're actually instructing into the causes of a a precious human rebirth and the causes of liberation, the highest good, liberation, enlightenment. And so, and that... Uh, that so the, and the third one is the benefic- beneficence. So encouraging others to practice and implement the teachings that you've given them. So you see, you you have the chance to speak to them, and then you have this kind of support. And then the fourth act, act in a way that accords with what you've instructed them to do. So this means that you are actually taming your own mind, you know, walking your walk preaching what you, living what you preach, practicing what you preach, so that you can act in a way that others uh, can understand and accords with what you've instructed them. So that's, anyone have, that's the first question of the four. Then the next one is, what does it mean to guide someone in the Dharma? So I would say, first off, we want our motivation to be one of kindness. 
what did other people come up with for this before I share my mind part? Did anyone have anything they want to share first? I guess what came to mind for me was immediately the Lamrim, just mm-hmm. how it's structured that uh, we're guiding people based on their disposition and where they are on the path. Yeah, yeah very good. In, um, I think that this is from Geshe Tektro. He brings us back to the to verse 8, 9, and 10, actually. So he talks about on the worldly level, we guide people in these 16 factors that lead to a higher rebirth. Anybody remember those? First 10. First 10 are the 10, yeah, of abandoning the 10 non-virtues. And then? Yes, avoiding three blameworthy actions. Avoiding intoxicants. Avoiding long livelihood. Avoiding harm. Very good. And then the three next ones are three things that are activities we want to engage in. Respect. Respectful generosity, honoring the worthy, and cultivating love. Very good. And that cultivating love symbolizes the four immeasurables. So when we talk about making offerings to those of, uh, worthy of respect, it also means in a proper manner. Right, so that's kind of the worldly level in a sense, although it's going to, because that leads you to a higher rebirth. And then there's the ultimate level where you're going to help people to create the causes for liberation and awakening. And this is the ripening of the mind stream, so to speak. So they mature in the Dharma. I didn't go back and look it up, but I also um, was reminded of what we learned in the Arya Deva text about understanding people's dispositions. And for example, of course, <laughs> this is why I think of it, yeah. the people who are tend towards angry personalities to care for them in a certain kind right. of way where they get kind of everything they want, right. where the people who are uh, filled <laughs> with attachment are really hard on them. Right. Yeah, yeah, and right. and things like that. And so having the courage and conviction of the practice to be able to do that. Right, and what's interesting on that note is that not only Arya Deva talks about that, but I, this winter I read about that quite a bit in the um, Vasudhimaga, the really? path of purification. The, when they talk about teaching meditators, they talk about the hateful, the hateful personality, and they had, oh, I couldn't believe the number of things they had worked for out of them, which, which of the four positions is best, which kind of colors are best. I mean, it was, they had all kinds of, and I, and I found in what their environments need to be like, and it was kind of matched a lot, only had a little more um, detail than what we learned. So that goes through the, some various traditions, right? I turned a lot to Lama Tsongkhapa to fill out some of these things, and um, he talks about the four ways to gather disciples, to train, training in this, to help them to mature. And he, the first two he has the same names for, but the third one, instead of beneficent, he uses working at the aims. And this is setting disciples to work on the aims they have been taught. So the meaning is the same. You're helping them to correctly undertake the, the teachings that you've given them. And he calls the fourth one consistency of behavior. And this is actually goes to one of the further questions, the internal requirements, right? Of, this is the last of the four questions for this one. And he, talk, he describes that as stabilizing yourself in the very aims in which you have established others and then training on them. So he's talking about the person teaching now. You have to, you're teaching other people these things, but you have to stabilize yourself in that, in these very aims that you've established 
for other, you know, others in, and then train in them. So this is actually, you know, this is the training for the, the teacher. So that's pretty much what I took it to mean the main topics for what it meant to guide someone in the Dharma. That was the second question of the four. Then does anyone else have anything to add to that particular one? Yeah. Well, one of the things I thought about with this question too was um, as as a practitioner to think in terms of any person we ever meet Mm-hmm. It may be the only time they ever get yeah. a little taste of Dharma. Yeah. And kind of to keep that in mind and not forget that. Right. Yeah, because we're going to establish these are the people we'll have karmic connections with, yeah. even if it's just that brief. Yeah. Yeah. And to kind of pay attention to that. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I have had on my mind for days now a man that I met when I was in junior high and high school and I didn't know very well. And I just got an announcement that he was um, doing, a, we're having a 45th high school reunion, and he's doing one of the mailing lists. And I've thought about him a number of times and asked my sister about him, and I feel like I must have some kind of karmic connection with him. I didn't know him well, but when I was in 11th grade and he was in 12th, he was kind of a strong guy who played football. He wasn't very big, tall, but he got hit. He was on a motorcycle, and he got his life has never been the same. He was he's been in a wheelchair, blind, very poor sight, legally blind. I think he lost his hearing in one ear and had a closed head injury. I'm not sure. I never realized he had enough brain power left to do this letter. It's the first thing I've heard in 45 years. And uh, this is a thing. I have a karmic connection with this person, you know, and it goes back 45 years and I feel it so strongly you know, I knew his girlfriend very well. I didn't know him very well. But I've always, it's always kind of haunted me. And then I've been just thinking about this, like, for weeks. Like, wow, it's been 46 years that his life was changed this way. And, you know, so I feel like I want to go back to this reunion just to see him. And, I, and I'm hoping that thought is in mind. Like, you know, this is, this is some connection that somehow has stayed with me for all these years. I've never seen him since he had that accident. We never saw him again because he was rehabbing. And so, yeah, everyone we meet, you just don't know what... So what are the range, the third question, what are the range of activities that you do, that you may do in this gathering of disciples? What does this involve? With generosity, it's just, again, you know, the person has to know the predisposition of the person to know what is appropriate to give. Right. Because you're gathering disciples. It's not like you're just trying to get friends. Right, yeah. Um, It's not a relationship of attachment. No, hopefully not. And then one would have to practice renunciation to give away things. Yeah, exactly. Um... Yeah, yeah. I guess that's all I have for that one. Yeah. Anyone else want to add anything? I what I found on this was uh, in brief. It's the range of activities is the six perfections. And so what I, I'll just go through the things I found. I couldn't really separate what I found from the second question. So these are going to be combined now. So the the last question. So the the third question of the four was what's the range of activities you may do, and the fourth was what are the internal requirements to engage in each type of these activities. So in brief, 
you have to achieve a measure or level of training in the six professions equal to or greater than those you instruct. And so, um, so let's kind of back up a little bit. You've, the person is pleased with you, but what is the first thing they need to know? They need to know how to connect to the path. And so we need to have this pleasant speech so that we can teach them. And that helps them to cast away ignorance and doubt and then uh, help them to correctly apprehend what the aims are. And then once they've understood the aims, then you want to help them or cause them to accomplish virtue by working at those aims. That's kind of the big picture. Uh, this is one thing that I think is really, you know, why uh, that first part talks about pleasant speech and this and that. Because if you haven't accomplished the virtue yourself, and just think about your own experience with people. Imagine, uh, this is Lama Sankapa speaking. He says, however, if you haven't accomplished the virtue within yourself, when you say to others, you have to engage in this and you have to reject that, what are they going to say? They're going to say, why do you tell others to accomplish this aim when you don't accomplish it yourself? You still need somebody to correct you. And so they don't listen because they don't listen to, even if what you're telling them is correct, they don't listen. But if you yourself are practicing, they'll see this. And this is what I see in my own experience with my teachers. If with knowing that they are role modeling this, then I instead I think this person is established in virtue, this is Lama Sankapa speaking, to which he or she is leading us. So we will definitely derive the benefit and the happiness if we accomplish it. It's like you have this feeling of conviction in what they're telling you because they're role modeling it for you. Whereas if they aren't role modeling it, even if they tell you something that's correct, our natural response is going to be, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, it takes a, a greater kind of mind, which we also have, to listen to people who don't, who don't, they say things properly, but they don't live properly. You know, it would take more on my side as just an ordinary being to learn from that person. So that's what we have to raise ourselves up to anyway. But, but still, you know, it would be much easier if we were, con you know, the person is consistent in their behavior. That's what it boils down to, consistency in behavior. So that's basically, this is the teaching for the teacher, so to speak. And that's what we have to strive for. So that if other, you're going to get people to, uh, not to reject what you're saying and to become stable in it, you have to be consistent in your own behavior. So that kind of answers for us why people don't listen to us sometimes. <laughs> We're not consistent in our own behavior. Why should they listen? They're not role modeling it. It's just kind of natural. And, and not that it always goes that way, but it can go that way easily. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Okay, so then um, this is kind of a long-winded answer, a few pages here on this question, but I think it really brings out things that for me I needed to hear. So it's a little bit repetitious, but now he's going to talk about the functions of these four things. And this is from the Lamram Chimo. So what, is the, what, how, what do these four ways to gather disciples do for the disciples? And this is a little bit of a repeat, but this is actually the ac range of activities in my mind. The generosity makes them fit vessels to hear the teachings because they're happy with the person who's explaining it. The pleasant speech makes them take interest in the teaching. It gives them a detailed understanding of it and it dispels their doubts. The working at aims makes them practice in accord with what they've been taught. So there's some repetition here. 
And the consistency of behavior makes them not reject it, but practice for a long time. And that's what I see in my own practice of like having excellent teachers. I'm willing to do more work on my side than I would otherwise. If I didn't have good role models, I wouldn't probably be able to work to the degree that even I do now because I wouldn't really see that it was so worth it. You know, that's what I, when I was studying this, I, that's what I found. So this is based, Lama Tsongkhapa is writing that based on the ornament for Mahayana Sutras where it says, by the first, that's the generosity, by the first they become vessels, by the second they take interest, by the third they practice, and by the fourth they train. So that's basically, you know, something about the range of activities. And then he goes into a little more elaborate explanation of this. And again, this gives us a more feeling of what the range of activities, but also there's a lot more that comes up in this part about the internal requirements. So the pleasant speech. He, Dhamma talks about two types. One that's more associated with worldly customs. So you, ex- you assume a clear expression free of anger. That's the internal requirement on the part of the teacher, right? Give a smile. And then please living beings in worldly ways, such as inquiring after their health, etc. So that means you're kind of connecting with people in a worldly way, but you're doing it, you know, some of us need to hear that. It's funny because um, I remember when I went to my full ordination, the, one of the abbesses, when they give you a lot of teachings, and one of the abbesses spoke, and all the people at this temple smiled a lot. They were taught, like, you have to smile at everyone, and it was like a little bit much. But she made it make sense to me in her own thing, because she wasn't a person who naturally, like, was this, she couldn't be a cheerleader like me, you know, like, I couldn't be a cheerleader either. I tried out, I couldn't smile on command. And she's like that too, can't smile on command. But she was kind of like, kind of too stern, and she scared people away. And at some point in her life as a abbess, she realized that she was scaring people. And she realized, on her side, I need to be more pleasant, so I'm more approachable, right? So that's kind of, I think, part of this part. Just on a worldly level, it's make it easy for people, right? And then the second type of pleasant speech is now we're associated with presenting the the perfect teachings. So what they're doing for their own benefit, uh, yeah, for their own benefit and happiness. So Lama Sankapas is starting with the teachings on faith, ethical discipline, study, generosity, and wisdom. And then he talks about the avenues of pleasant speech. So he, this is, I think, kind of interesting. It's kind of like a mind training kind of thing. To an enemy who would kill you, say helpful words without fault in your heart. That's a tall order. So that's an internal requirement of the teacher to be able to work with people who are angry with you, or people who even would kill you, to be able to say helpful words without a fault in your heart. And it's to the very dull-witted, you willingly rise to the challenge, tirelessly giving talks on the teaching and causing them to adhere to virtue. So the internal, you know, that's kind of one of the activities you're doing, but your internal requirement is you have to rise to the challenge of tirelessly giving teachings to people who aren't going to take them in right away. They're going to repeat, 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 and help them. To the devious who deceive their masters, abbots, etc., and engage in wrongdoing, you speak pleasantly with helpful words and without anger, teaching even the most difficult persons. So their internal requirement there is to have no anger at you know, 
thing, people who are, you know, deceiving them even. Uh, and then in, in order that people whose minds have not matured may eliminate obscurations and be reborn in happy realms, you give teachings on the preliminary practices of generosity and ethical discipline. So now he's talking about different groups of people. These avenues are actually different groups. This one are those whose minds haven't matured. So you're basically trying to get them to avoid an unfortunate rebirth and to establish themselves in ethical conduct. And then those whose minds have matured, who are rid of obscurations, possessed of a joyful frame of mind. Are we there yet? (laughs) That's what I'm thinking. You reveal the, the foremost and perfect teaching of the Four Noble Truths. So that's another category of people, those who are far, a little farther along, joyful, frame of mind, still working on that. Yeah, still working on that. But you encourage householders and renunciates who are careless to be conscientious. And to those who have doubts, you speak elaborately and explain the teaching to them to dispel their doubts. So that's the pleasant speech. And then he unfolds the uh, working at aims a little bit more basically kind of boils down to in one way bringing people who are immature to maturity and those who are mature to liberation. So another way that that's said is you, you involve people in taking up the aims of this life. So that is kind of referring to um, right livelihood essentially. You want them to have uh, ways to acquire, protect, and increase their resources that are consistent with the teachings so that they're able to establish themselves in this worldly life in a way that's ethical, essentially. And then people who are taking up the purpose of try to getting people to be involved in future lives, then you want to establish those who are open to this to become a renunciate. After they have rid themselves of possessions, <laughs> right? And then (laughs) that's what Lama Sankapa says. Of course, our abbess allowed us to take some time with that. She was very uh, skillful and, you know, as letting people ease in. We didn't have know much about monastic life. We needed to ease into it more. So, and Lama Sankapa is kind of funny here. He says, establishing people in the life of renunciate and who lives as a uh, mendicant after they have rid themselves of their possessions. He says, although this is certain to bring happiness in future lives, it's not certain to do so in this life. (laughs) He's very practical. And then the third one of this scenario is involving people to take up the aims of both this life and future lives. So both for householders and renunciants, trying to have them to have freedom from attachment, essentially, both to things that are mundane and super mundane. And what he says, which I found quite nice, because I've been thinking a lot about pliancy lately, uh, he says, freedom from mundane and super mundane attachment, for this generates mental and physical pliancy in the present life, and the attainment of a purified deity and nirvana in the future. I think you might have to go a little bit more beyond attachment for that, but it's, it's, it's probably the beginning, you know. It's, it makes sense to me, taking up the aims of this life and future lives, you're kind of working where a person is, and attachment is, you know, that's a pretty far, to really get rid of craving, 
attachment and craving. That's pretty fundamental. It's easier to get rid of anger than attachment in a sense. So it's, it's deep. Yeah. Um, I associate pliancy with developing concentration, concentration and right, calm abiding, yeah. particularly. And I think the what I understand is what stops people from really progressing and developing calm abiding is attachment. Right, attachment your mind's going off to all kinds of things, right? That's the, that I think I agree that would be the connection. But it's kind of interesting that he brought it up there. Okay, and then the consistency of behavior. Um, this one, kind of a repeat. You have to have your own maintain your own practices equal or to, or superior to those in which you're establishing others. And why? You know, why are you doing this? He's basically saying, and whatever you're doing in this regard, you have to keep your focus on living beings, discipline yourself in conjunction with this. Don't, you know, you, you have to be equal or superior and keep living beings as the focus. Which, you know, I think is, that's probably a good reminder. You know, I'm kind of, if you put yourself in the role of a teacher and you're reading this, you're thinking, you know, well, well, what am I doing now? Am I getting kind of pulled away by all these responsibilities or am I getting pulled away by all these, you know, having an entourage or offerings or whatever, whatever, who knows. But then he ends it with a, that section with a quote. Um, it's called, from a thing called Praise of Infinite Qualities. Some who are undisciplined use reasonable words but contradict these words. So they are called unable to help others to discipline themselves. That's kind of a repeat. This is what Lama Skapa has been elucidating here. Knowing this, you placed all living beings in your heart and strove to discipline yourself wherever you had lacked discipline before. So those are the internal qualities, kind of in a nutshell, of what I think that he was unpacking, I think, that verse, in a sense. Venable Chodron, when she talked about this, she said... Um, had some different points about if he, she was saying, if you're sincerely generous from your heart, so that's the internal quality, right? People are attracted to this. But if you're not sincere, people pick up on this. And she says, you want to instruct people on things, but we haven't always actualized these things. So this is a reminder not to shoot ourselves in the foot. <laughs> that's what she said. It was basically, she went on to say, we need to try to change and admit our mistakes. That's the internal quality there. And, and she, then she made the point that the teachings are good, so don't lose faith in them if the teacher isn't perfect. And that's kind of an important point because we're always going to run into that. Well, our mind might always run into that. It's hard to say what's happening on the outside sometimes. We will find faults in everything and everyone as an ordinary being. Easy to do. Um, but even sometimes maybe there is a fault that a, a teacher has. The, our job is not to, if if a teacher is doing something that's actually unethical and and you actually have to leave and respectfully move away, the, the thing that His Holiness teaches is exactly what's here. Don't lose faith in the teachings. The teachings are good, even if the teacher isn't perfect. So that's kind of a take-home message. Does anyone have anything they'd like to add to this question? Yeah. It may be self-evident, but I want to point out that I think Venerable Children, I've never heard her say this, I think she actively 
practices these all day long, every day. Uh, you know, I've, and ever since I first ever heard this teaching, I've watched how she enacts quite deliberately mm-hmm. these four actions. Mm-hmm. And so as a role model, it's, we have a good one. Yeah. Yeah, it was helpful for me. That's why I spent so much time on this one. I didn't know much about it, and I didn't have the right attitude about it even. But I have seen it, like, as you say. Uh, which volume? I, th- I think it might be at the end of... I don't know. I'm not sure, actually. I thought it might be the... I th- was thinking it was at the end of... Oh, yeah, it would be at the end of two. Yeah, because of the six perfections, then probably there. Yeah, I don't remember. It's, it's, I did this, put this together in December. Yeah. Okay, so now we're going to move on to question two. This is one, whether you were here or not, you can probably, for these teachings, you can probably find in yourself something to think about or speak about here. So number two, why is speaking the truth important for you personally, for others, and for society? What are the disadvantages of our use, using our speech unwisely? So first, does anyone know what verse, or have a verse that they want to connect this with? Go ahead. So verse 134, a single truth uttered by kings makes their subjects have firm trust in them. Likewise, one falsehood on their part is the best way to lose that trust. Mm. And so that um, encapsulates um, why it's important to speak the truth and, um, you know, for uh, oneself and for society and also what are the disadvantages of not doing so. So honesty uh, engenders trust and dishonesty um, destroys the trust. So I, I kind of split this up into personal for others and for society when I answered this question. So how about do people have, if people had a chance to think about this recently, could they speak about why speaking the truth is important for you personally? So after thinking about this, I put that speaking the truth is important to me personally because it keeps my mind free of a lot of negative mental states such as guilt, like feeling crummy about deceiving others and hating myself. Shame, which feeds my self-hate and reifies my sense of self. Fear closes my mind down, puts a lot of stress on my body. Lack of clarity in what is true puts me separate from others. It helps me sleep better. It gives me a sense of peace with the world. I never have to wonder what did I tell that person or what did I tell that person. There's no deception. Others will trust my words and others will be more inclined to maybe tell the truth as well. And we all kind of work on maintaining our own personal integrity and also to create the causes that other people always tell the truth to me if I tell the truth to others. So just a general sense of peace and clarity and lack of fear and, and it coming back to get me, to kick me, you know, later on. Yeah. So Thank you. It's very good. I'm on many, I pick up one. It's just pop up in my mind. I think it's uh, speaking truth speaking i mean lying uh, i mean speak yeah speaking truthfully would uh, prevent from uh deterioration of uh bounds we have with people connection we have with people because i think speaking uh, i mean lying would be probably i think it will be 
something opposite that we're trying to do in as mm -hmm. Buddhist practitioners, mm -hmm. you know, cherishing connection with other sentient beings. Then yeah. you're destroying it. <laughs> or you're hampering that at the minimum. Um, I was thinking a lot about it this retreat because I grew up in a country where I mean the paper is kind of like a propagandistic. So you, I never really knew what you could trust when reading the news. And now I live in a country where you also can't really trust what's in the news. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, I must have created that cause yeah. by not telling the truth. <laughs> and now I'm living the effect. Yeah, that's interesting. The personal now melds with the others in the society. We've created the causes of what we're now experiencing in some in some way. Go ahead. Yeah, al along that line, it, one of the, the things that I really have thought about is how crazy making the world is when there's no stability, when there's not truth around you. And I grew up in a, um, a family that was not particularly interested in the truth, I think. Mm. I, I don't think anybody would call themselves a liar, but, you know, a good story is a good story. And mm. so, for example, then I could listen to my mother and my sister each tell me about their conflicts. They didn't get along all that well. And it would, they would be talking about the same incident, two completely different stories. So there's no way then to get inside and actually be of benefit because you, you can't understand what actually, what's happening, who's seeing what, what's yeah. happening to who. So you're like in this house. It, so if you grow up that way, right. there's this constant kind of looking for ground of what's really True. Yeah, it's kind of like growing up in a delusion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to a degree. I mean, the ignorant side brings itself to the forefront. And I, f I feel that in our country now, too. Mm -hmm. That level of instability, insecurity. Yeah, I do, too. I find this current state of affairs around f fake news and all that to be really destabilizing. And not only the, the lying, but also the harsh speech, the divisive speech, all of it. In my experience, as it says in verse 134, one falsehood on their part is the best way to lose trust. Yeah. So trust can be lost very easily. Right. It doesn't have to be repeated incidents of, you know, speaking untruthfully. And then building that trust back takes a very long time, if it happens at all. Yeah, it's possible, but it's, it's a lot of work. Better to prevent. That's one of those, uh, you know... It's, an ounce of prevention is worth, worth it there. Yeah, hard to restore. So, actually, um, Tektrok has some things. He kind of takes it from the other side. He talks about speaking truthfully stems from a mind that respects others and wants to benefit them. And he says, when you speak only the truth, engage in a path of truth, and always act on the basis of truth, then even if temporarily things may not go very well for you, in the long term, you will get a true result. And so he's saying, like, from truth comes truth. Uh, and this is what I found and, you know, what we've kind of brought out here is that, um, no, I guess we haven't yet, but as he brings out, and I think is quite true, he says, even if you have other faults, people will trust you. And that's really true, you know. I mean, you can, it's, you know, it's that fundamental. It's the basis of good relationships. Let's see, I wrote out my personal things. 
A little bit for me, it helps me to live in my own skin. <laughs> kind of the things you're saying. Um, basis of a good of friendships and good relationships. I care that others can trust my words, and I know that lying will harm myself and others. So how about for others? Because we thought about it more kind of from our own side. You can really have to say that it destroys. Um, we're harming other people. In a sense, we're diminishing our relationships with them. And if you think about just maybe like in workplaces or things, places where you need leadership, not just in society and as a whole, but even in smaller levels, you know, like, in, like I think of a workplace a lot for this. Things work better in the long term if people are honest, like businesses, even in businesses where, where people, you know, may get a short-term profit, but people eventually find out they're ripping people off. I don't think that helps their bottom line in the long term. It's hard to imagine and I personally, as a consumer, once I've been ripped off by some company, I don't go back to them. Even like uh, some of the things that happened in the banking industry recently, I know people left these banks and they're just like, not, not getting my business, you know. And so that's, that's, a, that's definitely causing harm for, you know, with others. This is Cheryl, who says, yeah, not speaking truthfully causes others to question our motives and makes it hard for them to trust us even when we're telling the truth. Yeah. And if I have this kind of habit of not being truthful, then I start suspecting that others are acting the same way. Yeah, that's actually really true. Have you noticed that? People who steal are always worried they're getting stolen from. People who lie are always worried they're getting lied to. <laughs> kind of, yeah. yeah, it just kind of happens yeah so we see this right now in our own you know in the world that we can't trust leaders if they're not telling the truth, and that's having a lot of negative impacts makes us skeptical, mistrustful, we wonder about people's motives, can't trust their words, and even if they tell the truth in the future, hard to reestablish them. So, in this sense, it kind of destroys the, a healthy society, actually. Got, to me, it, what's happening now tears apart society. So you're just watching it. I think, too, now with, uh, in the country, what I think about a lot is um, the young ones growing up now in this environment yeah. and... and normalizing it this yeah. is this is the norm yeah that's and scary. that's very scary actually yeah, yeah i think it, we need a real big long extended conversation of what are we going to do with this because this is not i mean this, i find this to be the hardest part of everything that's happening now yeah i've been reading a bit of his holiness's book compassion mm -hmm. and uh, there was a couple of lines that stood out he said um Strong ethical values are the foundation of society. That, you know, that just reverberates thinking about what's happening now. and We mm -hmm. don't have that foundation. Strong ethical values are the foundation of society and so must be the underpinnings of our daily lives. That includes being an honest, trustworthy person. Yeah. So I don't feel particularly pessimistic about things because I think we also have models of things where things have really gone south and you know, poorly, like in Rwanda, for example, 
things that happened in South Africa and and societies have mended. You know, there there have been efforts made and and even the things that we learned about nonviolent communication, if you read in some of uh, his early, the books that we studied early, he was doing kind of conversations between groups, ethnic groups of people who didn't get along, not just not just married couples who were fighting for fifty years, but you know, different ethnic groups, different you know, there's it's not like we're in a hopeless situation. There's no reason to be pessimistic, but we need to be thinking and supporting endeavors that will help to turn things around. Um, I was going to say also that the other night when Venable gave the talk at uh, NIC, she demonstrated uh, courageous compassion, talking about these kinds of things mm -hmm. in society and... Um, what it seemed like what happened that it, that people connected to their deep values mm -hmm. it's almost like there's a layer of smoke or pollution right because of the right. what we're getting right. but when someone talks straight and clear right. with such compassion yeah, yeah it's like you just it cleared it, it out clears it away yeah, like and a, you're back to your yeah. your grounding again right. and i think there was a you know i think there's a lot of spontaneous things happening i don't follow the news close enough but right away that thing happened in spokane where people came together you know i think a lot of things have you know spontaneously as i think tanya told me that there's a lot of people are active people are being active on many fronts now because of the things that are going on and so i think i see our role particularly as a just like when we did that retreat on activism with altruism, you know, we just, we worked with a lot of activists and really people need to learn skills about how to get the anger out and to be able to sustain themselves and not burn out. The same thing that caregivers learn about and, you know, there's not like this is new, it's not new, but it, it's going to different areas. You have something you wanted to add? Yeah, I have the camera um, that I got um, born in, uh, in the GDR, and mm. there was a lot... Say that name out for people who don't... Um, German Democratic Republic. East Germany. Right. Yeah, East Germany. And um, there was um, this kind of um, Stasi system that um, had a lot of control over the citizens, and you... I grew up in a, in a, in a uh, capital, and there... Um, the neighbors didn't trust each other. Right. Um, so you even had to put on headphones if you wanted to listen to the radio from the West and those kind of things. So you didn't speak with many people, you yeah. know, only those you trusted. And right. um, it created a um, society that kind of, how I experienced it, like walking like a zombie through the city, you know, yeah. you 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 don't you are not together. But then there is this force from above, like the government was right. putting you in positions that you have to follow. Otherwise, you know, you get put in prison when you right. don't follow the system. And right. so it, it screws up um, your whole personality, and it can lead to a great deal of anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, I have experienced it in my own family life with mm -hmm. my mother, and. Um, yeah, it can lead to, you know, um, alcoholism, depression, and all those, and it makes the children sick, uh, mm. it makes everything in, sick. In, in the GDR, did that break up families, too? 
Because um, in, in, in the no, cultural actually, revolution, actually families got affected. Like you'd have a member of a family who was on one side and someone else who wasn't, and they'd turn them in. I mean, it really, it just split up even families. I don't yeah, know sometimes you heard stories that one partner didn't want to hold that and left um, mm-hmm. close to, to West Berlin or like a husband Germany. And wife or, would split. Yeah, so yeah, and left the children home or something like that. It mm-hmm. happened here and there. Yeah. yeah, just yeah, I want yeah. just to point out that you know the level of uh, damage that can do if you can't trust each other. Yeah. Right. What the society is doing, having the impact on the individuals and the kids. Yeah. Okay. So the second part of this question: What are the disadvantages? Well, I think we've hit that a lot. Uh, from the perspective of karma, because um, this, um, yeah, she's asking, what is using our speech unwisely for lying? Lying is the heaviest of those four non-virtues of speech and the most destructive. And from lying comes much slander. So even, you know, actually you can also do a complete karma and have an unfortunate rebirth. But if you are born as a human, you're going to still have some results. So people will slander you a great deal and they'll deceive you. There are environmental effects of lying. Any work you do in the fields or on boats will not flourish. I'm not sure how that would go for, you know, I, think I sometimes think there have to be kind of variations for that if you're not living where there's boats. You know. There will be no harmony among your workers. For the most part, they will be deceitful. You will be fearful and have many causes to be afraid. That's what you were describing. So, and then in this, uh, so, you know, one of the causes of a happy rebirth, remember the the ten non-virtues, so lying, you know, is going to keep you away from a good rebirth. We don't, I don't usually think about that. <laughs> I don't think about that. But this question was talking about unwise speech. So that also includes divisive speech, harsh speech, and idle talk. And so I, I wanted to kind of just review the, the causally concordant effects like we just went through. Lying is slander. You, you're going to experience that. From divisive speech, you'll experience loss of friendships. From offensive or harsh speech, you'll experience hearing unpleasant words. From senseless speech or idle talk, others won't listen to you. Uh, yeah, another way it's said with a little more detail is lying. They'll slander you. They'll deceive you. Divisive speech. Your helpers won't get along. They'll misbehave. The offensive harsh speech. You'll hear unpleasant and quarrelsome speech. In senseless speech, your words won't be respected or understandable, and your confidence will not be unshakable. You can kind of see those things, you know, when you look at your own experience and such. Okay, I think we have time to, yeah, we can do this third question. So the third question now is saying, what does it mean to speak truthfully? Did anyone find the verse on that one? So to speak the truth is to speak in a manner that is not deceptive. It is not what is, in fact, distorted by an intention. The statement is true by being of benefit to others. The other kind of statement is false since it is not beneficial. 
So that's quite different from how we usually, you know, might think of this. This is the Buddhist way of, of looking at this. So there's that something that's speaking truthfully isn't deceptive. So you're not trying to deceive anyone, presenting something that's counter to the facts, right? But it also can't harm the other person. So if, if you're either harming someone else or having the intention to harm someone else, that's actually not considered truthful speech. So our, what we want our intention to be is to be of, of benefit in the long term. What do people think about that? It's different than what we grew up with. This true statement must benefit others. It must be told with a motivation to benefit. Saying what's factually accurate with the intention that others suffer is not truthful speech. So we're raising the bar. <laughs> Just like we do with stealing, you know, the Buddhist way. You know, to say, to define stealing, stealing for a Buddhist is taking what wasn't freely offered. If you think of it that way, it's much more refined than yo, I didn't walk out of here with this book, you know, because it, it, it's quite different. So what do you think when the Buddha taught different ideas about the self? Do you think he was lying? He taught different ideas that were completely, even in some sense, contradictory to different people. <laughs> Uh, no, because it meets the definition of a true statement according to verse 135 because it says a true statement is um, true by um, reason of being of benefit to others. So mm -hmm. when Buddha was teaching different definitions of self and self selflessness, he was actually benefiting people who had uh, karma and disposition to better... Um, take advantage or respond right. to yeah. that particular what teaching. was suitable for them. Yeah. yeah, right. Skillful means. This verse reminded me, I'm reading a book of essays by Venerable Wuin students about what they've learned from her. And one of them was a story by a nun who was, her mother was sick and she was going back to visit. And then she was complaining to Venerable Wuin about her sister-in-law and how difficult she was being. And then one day Venerable Wuin meets the whole family and she tells her sister-in-law, Thank you so much for your support. It's been so invaluable to this nun that she can practice peacefully with your support. And she was like, did my teacher just lie? But, you know, she... And it really benefited the family situation and mm -hmm. the nun learned a lot about... So, mm -hmm. you know, I just thought, hmm. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. It's a vast, vast mind. <laughs> So I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, lying, a few more things, because the question is, uh, what does it mean to speak truthfully? So in one sense, it means to abandon lying. And um, I find that when we take it apart by what makes a complete karma, I find this to be quite helpful. It gives us more information, like the first thing, when you think about the base is, what are you lying about? <laughs> is the way I think of it. So you can lie about this, that is what was seen or not seen, heard or not heard, distinguished or not distinguished, cognized, like thought or not thought. You could lie about your thoughts. You can lie about 
attributes that you've distinguished or, you know, like, how would we say that in our own words? I saw it this way. You, know, you could lie about that in both ways. So that's kind of the basis. Because when we talk about a complete karma, we talk about basis at one way to speak of it as basis, attitude, performance, and culmination. So that that kind of like that's the basis. These eight bases of lying. So the attitude involves perception, affliction, and motivation. So you know, did I say that right? Perception, right? Yeah, perception. So you're misrepresenting a perception, something that, in the sense of what you've seen is something that you've not seen. You've seen, I saw two deer out there, but I say there's five. You're misrepresenting a perception. Or misrepresenting that you haven't seen is something that you've seen. That, that's the misrepresentation of a perception. If there's an affliction present to do that. And then the motivation is this desire to misrepresent your perception. That makes sense. And then the performance, you're indicating it somehow through speaking, through choosing not to speak. I always call that the sins of omission. It's my forte. <laughs> through gesture. That's <laughs> how so I got through the world. I learned that. That was something I learned in this life. I call it sins of omission. That's where my mind goes when I, when I look at my mind and where the things I had to work out, you know, it was like, yeah, I wasn't lying by speaking. I was lying more often by not speaking. Uh, through gesture, through writing, it doesn't matter if you're speaking um, for your own purposes or for someone else, which is different from the Vinaya. In the Vinaya, you have to actually speak. You actually have to speak it for yourself. But you could tell someone else to lie is what it's saying, and you're still creating, you can create a full karma in the performance part of it. And then the culmination is someone else comprehends it. They have to actually comprehend the meaning of the lie. If not, it's just idle talk. So that's helpful. I, and that's the, the, these things are also true for... Um, divisive speech and offensive speech, they're similar. If no one, if I go out screaming outdoors and yelling about something and no one hears it, it's not harsh speech because no one comprehended it. It's idle talk. It's that kind of thing. But it, it, I don't know, these, I have always found these refinements to be kind of helpful. And then the other thing that I think is interesting in karma is lying that's weighty due to the basis. And here, um, it was a little different than what I was expecting I, a little bit, um, or what I remembered about that, I guess. If you, of course, there's this desire to delude and deceive, but telling lies with many purposes. So here they talk about, um, well, I guess you could think of like, well, that would remind me of the elections. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit in politics. You could say one small little lie that you know is going to have all these ramifications in all these different areas. That would be a lie with many purposes. That would make it much more weighty. I mean, it's kind of common sense. Telling lies to those who have helped you, from parents to the Buddhas to good persons to friends, that's more weighty. 
And then this, this I didn't realize, but it makes complete sense. A lie that gives rise to one or more of the three weighty actions of killing, stealing, and sexual misconduct. That's more weighty. Or, and the most weighty, the heaviest of all, is a lie to split apart the community. And here I think it's talking about the Sangha community. So, the, so, you know, so what does it mean to speak truthfully? Well, this is kind of, when you look at what lying is in this level of detail, it helps you to kind of clean up your act and get <laughs> more towards the side of truth, I think. So, I, I, you know, take it, I take it that way. Yeah, does anyone have anything they want to add? Um, I think it was just a thought of mine is that to understand that what we say affects other people's minds too, as well as the whole environment that we're in. So I think sometimes I'm so, when I don't speak the truth, there's so much more just on what I'm going to get out of it, not realizing that every time I speak dishonestly, I'm affecting other people's minds, either for them to think about in the same way, to, to change their own states of mind to not be able to trust. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't sometimes see my lying as affecting other people's minds. I mm-hmm. see them maybe affecting their speech, maybe affecting their actions. But when you get into how they, they think about their own speech, how they perceive what I am saying, mm-hmm. that there's a lot more that's going on underneath the surface yeah. when I don't tell the truth. And then, then of course, the whole environment is that when truth isn't being told, then it just it kind of poisons everything, and the mm-hmm. whole environment changes, even, you know, the way, where, how you live and how you interact, and even just the way you do things yeah. gets affected in a really kind of a poisonous kind of way. Yeah, yeah. All right, so someone just pointed out that uh, even in neuroscience, people ha- have apparently learn that the more you lie the easier it becomes to lie and then two other people were saying how really we have to look at our motivation behind our lies and we need to use mindfulness to make sure our motivations and actions are clear because those can get very sneaky yeah i would say good to also recognize that when you're looking at your motivations they change and they can be mixed and you can clean them up (laughs) you know i mean Sometimes we kind of slide, and we might even start off with a good motivation, and we slide. But you can, you know, with the mindfulness and you know, taking time each day in your practice, you can find whoa, I'm off, bring yourself back, and make amends, purify. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to run the guilt trip on it. You just clean it up, put your house back in order, and do some dusting. Okay, so let's sit for a minute and um, think about um, these teachings tonight, the questions that Venerable asked, very skillful questions to make us think about the purpose of gathering disciples and thinking about what is uh, lying, what is uh, honest speech, and what you want to kind of take into your practice. These teachings really help us to see our impact on others and society, uh, both in how we can be helpful and 
how it can be harmful. So what we've done tonight is quite helpful. And, you know, I love the image of the pebble in the pond rippling out, us changing our minds, that affecting the people we're around, that affecting the people we're around, living the change to make the change. So uh, may this activity and any merit generated from it help every living being to have peaceful, calm minds and hearts.